Hear now the word of God. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray and ask our God to bless his word. Lord Jesus, your word is today, especially, is drenched in grace. I pray you would help us to see it. And not just to see it in the abstract as a wonderful thing that is for some people, on the one hand, help us to see us as those who need grace. Help us to see ourselves as those around the table with Jesus who were misfits and messed up. But on the other hand, I pray that you would help us to see others as those that we are ready and quick to share your grace with. Work in us today by your Spirit. Correct us, whichever way it is that we need corrected. Perhaps it's even both. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you remember in last week's passage, Jesus forgave this man who was paralyzed, and yet he surprised us. I, I think any of us would think that this paralyzed man is defined by his paralysis. There's nothing, there's nothing bigger that you could say about this man than that he was paralyzed. There's nothing you could say that he needed greater healing of than his inability to walk. And yet Jesus showed us there is something bigger, more important than paralysis. And that is the malady of unforgiven sin. This man needed forgiveness more than he needed to walk. You see, it turns out forgiveness is at the core of why Jesus came and what his life and what his ministry were all about. Forgiveness motivated and drove everything that he was doing. This was his mission. It was why he came into the world, to set people free from sin, to set people free from the guilt of sin, to set people free from the power of sin. And now he does, how, and now what does he do this week? He puts that principle of forgiveness and grace into practice. He spends time with the people who need it most. He spends time with people that his critics summarize as tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus has this scandalous habit of reaching out to people who actually need him, not for status, not for appearance, not because these people have something to offer him necessarily, but because of who he is. And so because of who he is, he reaches out to people who otherwise he would have nothing to gain from spending time with them. Uh, except perhaps damage to his reputation. And he's okay with that. And so today's passage presents us with three things that I think are going to help us reckon with putting forgiveness of sins into practice in our lives. In our lives. First, first point is the sinners. The second is the Pharisees. And then third, we have the lesson. 
What is it that Jesus expects us to learn from the way he spent time with these people? Well, first we see the sinners. Um, the interaction Jesus has with these so-called sinners is very, very natural. Uh, look how it begins in verse 9. It says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. So notice how this begins, right? Jesus sees Matthew, and Matthew is just doing his job. He's doing what he's supposed to do. Matthew's at work. And Jesus says to him, follow me. So he, he calls this disciple. He doesn't care where he is. He doesn't care that he's on the job. He doesn't care that he's at work. He calls his disciples wherever they are when he runs into them. Um, and, and the call of Jesus comes to us where we are in life as we're doing life. It, it doesn't wait necessarily for a special moment. Um, sometimes it's very unexpected the way that the call of Jesus comes to us. I remember a classmate at seminary telling me that the Lord changed his life because a stranger asked him out of the blue what would happen to him if he died tonight. Somebody just said, what would happen to you if you died tonight? And my friend didn't have an answer. And the very fact that he didn't have an answer caused him to actually despair for a season. And then eventually the Lord touched his heart and worked in him. Uh, I didn't ask my wife if I could mention this, but my wife was converted because somebody asked her if she was born again. And her response was, I'm a pastor's kid. And they said, that's not what I asked you. You know, somebody just out of really genuinely out of the blue, unexpectedly, unwelcomed, perhaps, certainly in the moment, she didn't want that question to be asked. But they surprised her with that question. Um, God started me off following Jesus, of all places, at a bookstore as a teenager running errands with my mother. And I bet if we went through the room, we could probably find very surprising ways that the Lord got a hold of each of you. Um, usually we don't make plans for God to change our lives. That's sort of the, that's sort of the point, isn't it? That, that he changes our lives and it's not something that we normally plan and plot for ourselves. Now, many of us grow up in the church, and, and maybe you say, I don't remember a time when I didn't believe. Um, that is beautiful. That is also a method that God uses to surprise us. It is a beautiful thing when somebody lives that way, and when they grow up as a covenant child, baptized, part of Jesus' church, and they couldn't tell you some wild time when they were running away from the Lord. That is a blessing, too. Um, but there's a bit of a reminder here about, uh, for us that opportunities to talk about Jesus with others come wherever we find ourselves. They usually are not so planned out. We tend to be very planned out people. We tend to think, now I'm going to do this, I'm going to talk to this person, and it's okay for us to plan to talk to others. But we also need to be ready for spontaneous opportunities to witness as well and to call people to follow Jesus wherever we meet them. Um, Jesus doesn't segment out life. Um, and so he, he says, you know, I, he doesn't say to himself, you know, I think Matthew, Matthew would be a really good person to talk to. I'm going to wait till his shift at the tax collector booth is over with because I don't want to interrupt his work. Uh, instead, I'm going to go up to him and I'm going to ask him to follow me later. Instead, he just goes up and he does it. He sees this man who needs the gospel and he just calls him where he finds him. And so I think we need to be very careful ourselves not to make excuses for our silence. I think sometimes that's what we're doing. You know, we say, you look, he's on his shift right now. I better leave him alone. 
this person working at the, at, the, at the cash register doesn't want to hear anything from me. Um, I, I shouldn't do anything. Or, or maybe we say, I'm on the clock right now. Uh, I don't want my boss to get mad at me. I don't want to get fired. So I'm going to just stay quiet, even though I see this person who clearly needs to hear about Jesus, right? Uh, no way I can talk about God here. Um, but look, for Jesus, any time is a good time. For Jesus, any time is a good time. He's not afraid. He's not bashful. Uh, he sees the need and he speaks. And so, Christian, would you please ask God to show you more frequent opportunities to do that in your own life as you're out and about? Um, look what he says in verse 10. It says, uh, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector, and the narrative immediately moves to the house, whatever the house is. It just says he's in the house. And we know from Luke's gospel that this is Matthew's house. So once Jesus becomes a part of Matthew's life, here's what happens. Matthew doesn't suddenly lose these, lose these other relationships, right? He doesn't suddenly say, look, I, I can't be around tax collectors and sinners anymore, guys. I'm turning a corner here. Um, instead, he still knows all of these people. And in, and, in, and in fact, Matthew's old life ends up becoming the door through which Jesus enters to meet these folks that he wouldn't otherwise have shared this meal with. Right? His old life still is relevant to the work that lies ahead for him. And so notice that what's going on here is Jesus is not just getting a bite to eat here. He's not like, well, look, I need to fill up somewhere. I'll just go to this house with all these people that I really shouldn't be around. Um, there's an old Jewish saying, to share a meal is to share a life. To share a meal is to share a life. Um, there's something very significant here. More than just needing to get food and he'll take it wherever he can find it. Jesus opens himself to these people. And it sounds like they're a rough bunch. You know, you ever run, run around with a rough bunch? Well, this happens to me because I'm a pastor. You, you run around with people, you spend some time with people, and maybe they don't know you're a pastor. And as soon as they find out you're a pastor, suddenly they stop swearing and they start apologizing for all the curse words and, and all that stuff, you know? And that Jesus, Jesus goes with a rough crowd. They're probably the swearing types. They're probably the types that look like they're the bad guys of Jewish society. That's who he's hanging out with here. Um, and it's possible that, that he's opening himself up to accusations of being with the bad guys here. People might even claim he approves of, of these people and approves of their lives. They, they read all sorts of things into the fact that he's there. And he goes anyway. He goes all in. Uh, he enters into the, the shady element of Jewish society and he reclines at table with them. These are not the local elite who are keeping their appearances up. These are people who know each other and they live on the lower end of the social spectrum. Uh, there's a particularly well-regarded journal article about this passage and one of the things they say in the journal article is that when it talks about tax collectors and sinners, that word sinners is a very open word, but it's also meant to be a little bit of a, 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 just a little bit of a hiding what's really going on there. And what this journal article suggests is that the people gathering here are tax collectors, thieves, gamblers, possibly even pimps and prostitutes. They actually had those in Jewish society. 
Uh, they actually have those in Israel. Um, these are the people who would say embarrassing things at the dinner table and break the typical rules of conduct, and Jesus is there. And in one lesson I think I draw from this is being around sinners doesn't automatically turn you into one. Um, sin doesn't happen by osmosis. Um, somebody else being a notorious sinner or having sin in their lives that you know about, sharing a meal with them is not actually going to ruin you. Um, it doesn't mean that we should be foolish. It doesn't mean that we should participate in sin just for the sake of outreach, right? It doesn't mean that we should condone sin so that we can have an audience with someone. Um, it doesn't mean that we, don't put our, that we put ourselves in positions that, that could be sources of temptation for us, especially if we have a history with certain sins. I think someone who has a history of, of alcohol abuse may not be very wise witnessing to people at a brewery, for example. Um, but Jesus is at least showing us that following him doesn't mean that we are cut off from the, the rest of life and cut off from the rest of the world around us. Because look, Jesus lived immersed in the real world and he didn't become unclean because of it. If we are trying to live pristine lives, untouched by the sin of others, if we're afraid of what it might do to us or, or do to our reputation, if we spend time around sinners, we might do well to remember that Jesus lived in it and he didn't run from it and he served within that context. Now, second, we have the, the Pharisees. The Pharisees enter the, enter the scene in verse 11. In verse 11, it says, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So they want to know, why is he doing this? What's his motivation? What's his rationale? How can he, how can he justify this? Doesn't he know who these people are? So the assumption behind the question is that Jesus shouldn't be doing this. So, so they're the sorts who do not eat with tax collectors and sinners. They practice separateness. They separate from people. They treat sin like it's a disease that gets passed around by contact. And the result is a society that is sorted by the clean and the unclean, the good and the bad, the people who are the good guys and the people who are the villains. And, and I think we increasingly relate to this social structure well. Um, our society is increasingly segmented, and we're not necessarily segmented like, like the Jewish society was by religion. We're, we're, we're segmented by our new religion, which is politics. And um, this happens. This happens as people, by the way, I'm bringing this up not because I think there's a direct application here to politics, but because we understand very well what it looks like to sort ourselves. We know very well what it looks like to sort ourselves um, right now, we live in a time where people want to live with people who think and act like them. They're calling it the great sort, right? So the red states get redder, the blue states get bluer. People say, I want to live somewhere where the people and the government are like me. And um, yeah, I'm not saying that it's a sin for someone to move from Oregon to Tennessee or uh, to Texas or, or Idaho. But I want you to think about this, how easy and natural and how right it feels for us to try to be around people who are like us, where there's less friction, where life seems easier, where the people are like us. It's so tempting. It is so 
It's so natural for us to say, I'm moving, I'm leaving, I'm out of here. Um, We do this in our physical spaces where we live. We do it on social media. If you use social media, I'm not really recommending it, but a lot of people use it. Um, We see more, we are more likely to see in our newsfeed people who echo our own beliefs and our own worldview. We tend to block or unfollow people who think differently than us. And so what do we do? We want to hear the voices that sound like us. We want to be around people who are like us. And the result is that it becomes harder to imagine why some people are the way that they are. Or we have very little personal connection with people whose worldview is different from ours. And so we don't know how an unbeliever thinks because our world is filled with believers, right? Many of you work with unbelievers. In fact, I, I suspect most of you work who work outside the home or uh, unless you're like me and you work at a church or a Christian school, you work with people who, aren't un, who are not believers. But even if you work with unbelievers, do you have any relationships with them? Do they know you? Do you have any interest in them? Do they know that you care about them? Uh, do you know them? Uh, do they know you? What do you? Who do you really have relationships with? Um, usually when I ask Christians that question, they say, I have relationships with family members and I have relationships with other church members. Um, and maybe they'll say, I have uh, relationships with families from the school. Um, many Christians have very few relationships, if any, with people who are what we might call sinners, people who don't know Christ. How many sinners do you know? I'm putting the word sinners in quotes because we, we know we're all sinners. But how many people do you know that you think of as sinners? Um, I was teaching a class uh, last year. I won't say what grade or class or school, but you might be able to guess. And I, I asked the students, how many non-Christians do you know? You know, tell me about some of your relationships beyond the Christian bubble. And I thought that in, you know, I came from Mississippi. I just figured, man, everybody's running into secularism all over this city. And I was very surprised in a big secular city like Portland to, that they would say, you know, I know lots of, I don't, they, most of them would not say that they knew any non-Christians. Only a couple of them who had jobs outside of, uh, of school knew any unbelievers. I realize uh, that that could be an outlier if you're at a, at a Christian school, but that's, I think that's part of the point, I suppose, that I, I want to make is that we as Christians are generally uneasy around unbelievers. They make us nervous for some reason. And so what do we want to do? We want to protect ourselves. We want to protect our children from them. And the end result, if that's our view and that's our approach, can be a bit of a ghetto in our lives where the walls are up, the circle's small. We don't get into very many conversations with people who aren't like us, who aren't politically like us, who aren't religiously like us. And so in some cases, our children may go off to college and find out that secular people maybe aren't quite the caricature that we portrayed them as in our own lives because they didn't know any in everyday life. And so even if we don't move out of state, we do tend to sort, right? The big sort happens at a small, small scale. Let's call it the little sort. We practice the little sort in our lives. Now we need to bring the Pharisees into this conversation because they're essential to the passage. But I am very sensitive about bringing the Pharisees up. The Pharisees are a very potent card to throw down in a sermon. Uh, if, you start to, if you even imply that somebody is a Pharisee, boy, that's like the end of the discussion, really. 
Um, you know, have you, have you ever heard of uh, the argumentum ad Hitlerum? If you, if you bring Hitler into the conversation, the conversation is over, right? If, if you compare somebody to Hitler, the conversation's over. Same thing with the Pharisees. Uh, if you're in a conversation with a Pharisee and you suggest that someone else might be uh, friendly to the Pharisees, well, it's a very un- well-known, unofficial rule that the conversation is also over with. So here's the thing. I find it generally unhelpful to compare other people to the Pharisees, certainly on a regular basis. But for the good of our own souls, we need to be willing to compare ourselves to the Pharisees. Um, And I think this is a case in point. The Pharisees practice the little sort. They have relationships with other Jews, uh, other well-behaved, respectable Jews, but not those outside of the bubble, not those outside of the, the social circumstances that they have engineered for themselves. And so the Pharisees want to know, hey, why doesn't he sort? Why is he eating with the other people? Why is he eating with the tax collectors and sinners? You know, they're, they're puzzled, right? We all do this. We, we eat with our people. We keep up appearances. Why isn't your teacher doing that too? It's noticeable enough that they're, that they're willing to address it. Um, so what about you? What's your social circle like? Do you know unbelievers? Do you know people who are spiritual but not religious? Do you know people who say they're Christians but they don't go to church anywhere and they seem like everyone else that you know? Um, do you know someone who says that they're gay? Do you know someone who doesn't think that the Bible is the word of God? Um, do you know people who are just different from you and who might end up disagreeing with you in a conversation? Do you talk with them? Do you spend time with them? Do you get to know what they're like? Do you have people who aren't Christians, but they trust you and they believe that you care about them? Um, do you know people from the other side of the tracks who live a very different life from you? Would you become friends with someone who isn't like you? Um, Rosaria Butterfield uh, wrote a wonderful book called Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And in the book, she talks about this. She experienced this. She, she was a, a lesbian who was living with another woman. She was a tenured professor of gender studies at a famous women's college. She was deeply anti-Christian, but she came to develop a friendship with a Christian minister who invited her to dinner And this is a man who he and his wife and his family just took an interest in her and loved her and spent time with her and answered her questions. And they tried to persuade her of the claims of Jesus. One of the interesting things she mentions is the fact that he never invited her to church, which I know sounds really irresponsible for me to hold up as a as a like a great example but he knew, he knew what would happen if she did that. She would feel like he was trying to sell her something. And so because he knew her and because he had a relationship with her, he specifically knew this is not the right thing to do in this case. And so instead, he kept going to church. He kept moving her towards the Bible. He kept encouraging her to read scripture. And eventually she began to take an interest in these things that he and his family cared about. She started to read the Bible for herself because she wanted to understand this man and his family better. And what she said was that she grew to realize that what she knew about Christians was a caricature and not at all connected to reality. And the caricature goes both ways, by the way. Unbelievers believe caricatures about us, and we can believe caricatures about them. 
Eventually, though, the Lord broke through her hard heart and made her willing to believe the gospel. What did it start with, though? It started with a man who was willing to have a lesbian women's studies professor at the dinner table with his children. (laughs) And they all sat together and they ate and they spent time together. Now, I'm not trying to guilt you. I, I, I expect that you, I don't expect you to suddenly start running in other social circles, though maybe, maybe you do need some of that. But could your world, could your bubble be bigger than, a, than you currently allow it to be? Now, up to this point, you may feel pretty beaten up. I hope not. But I want to say one positive thing. This is an encouragement for Christians here in the midst of this point. Um, The rest of society is no better at this right now. (laughs) They're not. Um, People naturally do sort. Christians, however, we have one thing that greatly helps us. Um, And if you come to church, then we aren't, then you aren't like the rest of society. Because church is a place that you come to spend time with people that you otherwise would not be around. Like I, um, I mean, I just think about the, all of you, and I would encourage you, think about the other people in this room right now. What percentage of the people in this room would you see on a regular basis if it wasn't for church? How many of you run into each other during the week? Now, some of you are going to have people that you run into during the week, but think about the percentage of the church members here that you regularly see just when you're out and about. I mean, in a city this size, it doesn't happen very often. Maybe that's because I'm living in Hillsborough and you're all in Beaverton. Um, but for me, the answer is like 5%. 5% of you I would run into if it wasn't for church. And if it wasn't for church and school, the probability of us being in each other's lives is very small. We would all go to work. We would go home. We would do life, take the kids to school, and we would isolate. We get on social media and we might run into each other, right? If I was using it. Church brings people from all different walks of life together, the people you do not engineer your contact with. Um, And now what are we doing then when we meet together and we see each other on Sundays? We are encouraging and building each other up, people who wouldn't see each other otherwise. People who are friends and who love each other, not for anything else but for the sake of Jesus, right? There are people in your life here at this church that you would not know if it wasn't for Christ. That's a good thing to have in common, by the way. If you want to be bound together with somebody by anything, Christ is the strongest bond that you could have. And that's what you have here at church. And so Christians are meant by nature to be people who love others. We move out from ourselves. We move out from our bubble. We put others first and and are in other people's lives, just like Jesus shared his life with the people at the table. Now, uh, Here's the question I suspect you're asking right now. In fact, I was, my poor wife getting picked on today. I was running through the main idea of today's sermon. She asked me, what's Sunday's sermon about? I told her, and she said, yeah, but doesn't Paul say? And it was exactly what I have here. So I'm glad I put it in because if it went, came to her mind, then it's already in your mind. And you're already thinking about it too. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, doesn't he say bad company ruins good morals? Doesn't Paul say that? So how are we supposed to think about Jesus spending time in this bad company? Is it just because he's the son of God and he's immune, all the sin just bounces off of him and and doesn't bother him? 
And the answer is, Scripture does say, bad company ruins good morals. And there is danger in living in this world. And there is a danger that we become enamored of how the world lives and our hearts can start to love the world and start to love the things in the world. And we can start to live like them. The danger is there. It is real. It's not imagined. When Jesus entered the world, he opened himself up to all sorts of dangers and temptations and pains. And those never went away during his earthly ministry. But Paul never says that we should have no relationships with unbelievers. Probably the clearest place he says this is earlier in the same book. So if you're in 1 Corinthians 15 and you go 10 chapters forward to 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 11. It's one of my favorite passages about how Christians should think about living in this world. You've heard me talk about it before. We've got to look at it again. Because here's what Paul does. Even as he acknowledges that bad company ruins good morals, he says this. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since they, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Take that and read it on to that passage where Jesus goes into the house. Would you ever accuse Jesus of spending time in bad company and having his good morals corrupted? Paul here is, is, is helpful here. He's making us see the lines that he is drawing. It is not a problem for us to spend time with sexually immoral people. It is not a problem for us to spend time with swindlers or cheats or idolaters. The problem is when they bear the name of Jesus and they claim to be a follower of Christ and they refuse to repent and turn from their sin. That is the sort of bad company that Paul is afraid we're going to be corrupted by. The superficially religious bad company. Jesus eats with the lowest of the low in society. They don't claim to be his followers. They don't pretend like, like they know Jesus. They don't talk like he's their savior. He eats with them. He, he shares a meal with them. And Paul says, you know who is the greatest danger to you? People who won't admit that they're sinners. In fact, people who think that they are great and think that they are pristine. Hypocrites who show with their lives that their profession of faith is false. Don't even share a meal with someone like that. This is very different from the way I think we naturally think. We tend to think that even the people who profess to be believers, at least they're better, right? At least they're our people. At least they have the same causes and the same beliefs as us. And, and Jesus is saying by his example and in keeping with Paul's words, have meals with the sinners. Spend time with the people who need to know grace. It's the religious people who only pretend to bend the knee to Jesus that you need to look out for. I think this is another story I've shared before. Uh, one of the most painful decisions I ever made was regarding a man I grew up with. He was a professing believer. We were high school friends together. We read C.S. Lewis together. We listened to R.C. Sproul together. We both had New Geneva study Bibles. They were matching. Um, 
We went to church together. Um, uh, Aaron and I got married, and he, uh, being my friend, married a good friend of my wife's, and so we were close. And to make a long, very painful story short, he cheated on his wife repeatedly. And one day he came over to spend time with me, and I said, I cannot go with you anymore. I can't, I can't be your friend even. Our lives are going in very different directions, and I just see no signs that you are planning on changing. Um, you say you follow Jesus. You won't stop hurting your wife over and over again. God calls you to repent, and I would be failing you if I didn't tell you that. I had another close friend who had to do the same thing with a lifelong friend of his own. It was a very agonizing decision. Um, This is, I think, what Paul is talking about. I think this is what Paul is talking about. Uh, Imagine if they had continued to live that way and I had decided, you know what? We're going to stay together. He's going to be my lifelong friend, even though he says he follows Jesus and he'll never stop what he's doing. The problem is not when we know sinners. The problem is when they claim to know Jesus. They claim to live as though he, that, that, he's their, that they're his follower. And then you can see with their life that he's not their Lord. And Paul says, do not associate with anyone like that. Don't even eat with such a one. Don't even eat with such a one. Third, we come to the lesson. So Jesus has something to say to the separatism of the Pharisees. Something to say to the little sort that they're practicing to their assumption that he shouldn't be around sinners. And so we see part of his response in verse 12. It says, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So, you know, it's interesting. Jesus doesn't respond to the challenge by saying, you know, guys, I can explain. I, I was invited to this party, but I had no idea who was coming. Uh, I got invited to Matthew's house, and then one thing led to another, and before you knew it, it was full of these weirdos. And he could have just kind of backed out and said, i got to go out the back door. They're going to take photos of me outside, you know? He doesn't doesn't do that. Um, He doesn't say, look, I got invited to Matthew's house, and if only I'd known what was going to happen, I, I would have declined. You guys were right. You know, he doesn't yield anything to them whatsoever. Instead, his answer is, this was on purpose. I knew what I was doing. I thought about it before I came over here. I premeditated all of this. My arrival at this house is not an accident. Why wasn't it an accident? He explains. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He's an idealist. He came to this, meet, this dinner because, he, because it was the right thing to do. He was driven by a love for the sick, and he has the medicine. How is Jesus supposed to minister the gospel to people who need the gospel if all he ever does is spend time around people who think they don't need the gospel? If you're spending time around people who all think that they're fantastic, and you tell them, I am a savior of sinners, they're going to say, wow, you should find some to talk to, because that's not me. Um, we may have a lot of excuses for why our lives are so segmented. But I, I will just be really blunt with one possibility. A big part of our problem may be that we have very little pity for people who are sinners. And we may have very little pity in our hearts for people who aren't like us. 
So we, we do use the caricature. We do think of everybody else out there as a mass of robotic individuals who thoughtlessly follow the programming of the world. And we don't consider that they might be thoughtful people who are, who are wrong and who are trapped in their own world of sin and their own world of self-love and they need a way out. And the Christians are all too afraid to talk to them and too embarrassed of the gospel to tell it to them in the first place. And we know the gospel. We just assume everybody else knows it and hates it. And the reality is we have turned people into a caricature in our own hearts and we have forgotten how desperately sick and in need of Christ they are. And we can easily slip into thinking, you know, Christ for me, not for them. They'll never repent. They'll never change. They'll always be like this. And in the process, we forget that that was ever us. And we may think, you know, we were the respectable kind of sinners. I'm the respectable kind of sinners. I was the, I was the kind that God was able to reach. Uh, I was a more conventional person. Um, I, I'm less radical. I was less radical. I was, I was less wild. I was less obnoxious than those folks out there. They're different. They're worse than I was. May we never be so deceived as to think, well, I was a sinner, but not like that. We struggle to be around people who are different because somewhere along the way, perhaps, we forgot that that is us. We stopped seeing ourselves in their faces. And we forgot, perhaps, that this same grace that we enjoy was held out to us, to use Paul's language, while we were still sinners. We sing Amazing Grace, perhaps, when the song says, Saved a wretch like me, we think of it more abstract, less autobiographical. We may be lacking compassion for people who are actually very much like us. And the Pharisees here, they have no compassion for the prostitute. They have no pity for the tax collector or the thieves. Those people are ruining society. Those people are making Jerusalem a dirty, gross place to live. You feel that way about the folks downtown? It's easy to think that way. There's a lot of truth to it. <laughs> do you believe they need grace? That they, do you believe that they're less worthy of grace than you? Do you believe they're less likely to respond to grace than you were? See, Jesus is calling us, even by his example this morning, he's calling us to be people who are outwardly facing and inwardly critical. Right? We may say we're sinners. Do we see ourselves as put together? Are we the right kind of sinners? Jesus is speaking to us today if that's, if that's a problem for us. See, on the one hand, he's pushing us to love those that we don't naturally love. And on the other hand, he's also saying we need to see ourselves in the low-down folks. He's saying we need to see ourselves in the sinners. And if we don't see ourselves as belonging at that table, right? if we don't see ourselves in that house with the Pharisees looking in with disdain, and if we don't believe we belong at that table, then we're in deep spiritual self-deception. It's far more dangerous, I'm convinced, to be a religious person who thinks he's doing great than to be a spiritual failure who, who knows he's a spiritual failure. The failures are the ones that come to Jesus. And the put-together people are the ones who stand on their own two feet. And maybe they occasionally talk about how they need Jesus because they're so unfulfilled. But the failures, they really need Jesus. And they know they need Jesus. And they live that way. Now, maybe that's not you, though, right? Um, for you, the problem may, be, may not be that you think of yourself as respectable 
and fancy. Maybe you don't feel like the put together person. Maybe you sin more times this week than you can count and you know it. Maybe you have actual things in your past that you don't think you'll ever get over. Things that you have done that when you think about them, they cause your heart to sink. And so you feel like a failure. You feel like the people Jesus is at the table with here. Um, The put together people don't seem to have time for you. And you can barely bring yourself to feel worthy to be with Jesus or his people in the first place. If that's you, the word that Jesus has is, I came to give this message to you. The gospel is for you. This is, there is grace for you. That's, that's why he came. Because people like you need him. He lived for you. He died for you. And if you are a sinner, Jesus is calling you today. Just like he called Matthew. Whether Matthew was expecting it or not, what happened? Jesus walked past and he said, follow me. And whether you've been a Christian for many years or whether you've never been a Christian in your whole life, the call to us all is the same today. Follow me. So let's receive that message and let's spread that message. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, may we never so praise ourselves as to think that we do not need your grace. May we not be greedy and keep your grace to ourselves. Make us generous with your grace. Make us ready to hold it out, to throw it out to the watching world so that it would never be said of us that we are those who do not need the great physician. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.